All right, friends. If you got your Bibles, pull them out. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. There's a blue one underneath the seat you are sitting in, but you're going to want a Bible or a scripture journal this morning. So pull out a Bible. Um, if you have a scripture journal, that's great. If you don't have a scripture journal, uh, there's a few extras in the back. What we did is we created for this sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, we created these uh, sweet scripture journals where we, the Sermon on the Mount is in there. The full text of the Sermon on the Mount is in there. But then there's tons of space for you to journal and to kind of wrestle through the Sermon on the Mount with us. And so the, these are back there on the, on the sound booth. If you didn't get one, you can get up and you can go. You're not going to offend anybody. Just push them out of the way and you can go back there and get one of those scripture journals uh, and flip to the page that looks like this. Um, we are in Matthew 5. For those of you who are in your Bibles, Matthew 5, 33 through 37 this morning. And kind of a strange text, but this series of the Sermon on the Mount, this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I should say, um, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again. He's driving home this point. He's trying to communicate something, and he's using these little, these little vignettes to paint a much larger picture. Okay, so there's these six vignettes, and they all um, kind of begin the same way. These famous statements where Jesus says, you've heard it said, whatever, but I say to you this something different. He takes a teaching kind of of the Old Testament, a teaching of uh, that the Pharisees had taken and kind of twisted in that day. And he begins to kind of re, rework it, reshape it um, in, in a way that is actually the heart of what God was getting at in that Old Testament text. And he ends with some sort of shocking statement at the end that makes his audience go, wait, what? And then lean in a little bit more, right? Or as Forky would say, what? No. Um, Really? You guys haven't seen that? You guys don't know what I'm talking about? I just look like an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Disney Plus, man, you got to get it. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. This morning, though, this morning, we've, been, we've gone through four. of This is our fourth one. We've got two more. Um, and uh, th this one is a little bit different than the rest. The, the first few are very, very, very relevant to our culture today. This one is slightly different. And I don't want you to get lost in the jargon of the text. And we're gonna work our way through this text line by line, word by word, verse by verse, but then I want us to do the work of applying it. So you'll see how it was relevant then, but I wanna show you how it's relevant now. Without any further ado, let's get into the text this morning. Matthew 5, 33, here we go. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, I said a minute ago, there is some, there's some weird jargon in this text, like weird things that we don't talk about anymore, right? Uh, that, that idea of swearing, um, 
in, in Jesus' day, this was common. For us, like the idea of swearing is, is foreign. I remember when I was a little boy, like a really, really young, my, my aunt and uncle uh, moved to Wyoming. They, they were from Illinois, like Wisconsin, Illinois, and uh, they, had, they kind of quit their careers, they quit their jobs, they picked up their family, picked up their kids, and they moved to Cody, Wyoming to work on a ranch. Like that was the dream. Like, man, we're gonna, we're gonna go ride horses and, and live in Wyoming because it's beautiful and Illinois is not, uh, which is true, by the way. Um, and so they, they pack up everything. They move to Cody, Wyoming, and they, they live this, this ranch life and, and just kind of fall in love with it. And so one, one year, my, my mom decides she wants to go visit her sister. And so we load up the car and we, we drive from Illinois to Wyoming. Now I was a little kid. And the only thing I really remember, there's a few things that I remember about that trip. Number one, the drive was insanely painful. Um, Nebraska, not fun. Just like not a fun place to drive. Um, I'm sorry if you're from there, but it's, it's, a, it's more boring than Illinois by a significant margin. Um, but we made it, we get out there, we get to Wyoming, and we do all the things you do in Wyoming, right? We, we shot guns, we uh, did four-wheeling, we, we climbed mountains, we, we did whitewater rafting, we rode horses. That's pretty much all there is to do in Wyoming. That's it. Like that's, I just listed them all. Um, but it's amazing. Like I saw mountains for the first time and it ruined me. I was like, someday I'm moving there. And here, here we are. Um, but there's a moment on this trip that I remember that kind of like, I don't know why, but as a young, young, young little boy, it's like scarred me. It's like burned into my brain, okay? Uh, we, we were getting in, in my aunt's van. She had like this big conversion van with like a table in the middle where you could like play cards and stuff, which is crazy. Um, I just remember it so vividly. And my cousins start picking on me, which is what they would do regularly. Um, and one time my cousins, when I was like a little kid, like four years old, my cousins made me watch Freddy Krueger. Um, and then they made me sleep by the door and said, if he comes in, he's getting you first. Um, I was up all night. They were really good at tormenting me. Uh, my cousins, uh, they, they started picking on me and I said, I said something to the effect of, no, 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 I swear this is what happened. I swear this is true. And the van like erupts in this like chaos of like, mom, Josh swore, he's swearing. I'm like, wait a second. Whoa, 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 hold time, time out. I, I didn't swear. I didn't drop any F-bombs. No bad words that I know of came out of my mouth. Like, is there some new bad word that I haven't heard of? I didn't swear. And they're like, they're like living. My Aunt Karen's getting all on me. Like, what did you say? You swore. Why'd you swear? I'm like, I didn't swear. Like, I had no concept of this idea that there's different types of swearing, right? Uh, there's, there's the naughty word type of swearing. Um, and then there's, and there's this kind that Jesus is talking about in the text this morning. Um, this idea that there are, there's a level of which we can, we, can, we can use a word or words to kind of build a work around words that we've already said, to create infrastructure around our language, right? Swearing is, is our way of upping the level of our claim. Usually when that claim is being doubted in some way, shape, or form, like swearing ups the level. It increases the weight of our words by adding the phrase, I swear, or I promise, or I vow. To begin a statement, we are fortifying that language. We're increasing the strength and the weight of a claim we've already made. No, no, I swear I will be there. I swear I will not miss it. I swear I'll pay you back. Man, I promise, no matter what, I promise that I'm gonna follow through on this thing. No, I swear, that really happened. Like, I know it's crazy, but that really, I swear, that happened. We're fortifying something that's already been said. Why is this a bad thing now? Like, who cares? Why does it matter? Why does Jesus say clearly, he says, don't, don't do that. 
well, why? Verse 33, Jesus puts it this way. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, because he's pulling this from ancient Israel, Old Testament, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now that quote is actually not found in the Old Testament. So he's paraphrasing from somewhere. And there are a number of different verses in the Old Testament that are similar to this, where, where God speaks and there's a, there's a law written or given says, hey, this is a bad idea. One in particular that I, that I feel like, um, based on all the ones that I, I read this week, the one that I feel like, man, is kind of most similarly matches what Jesus is getting at here, comes from Deuteronomy, which is the, 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 Bible that Je- or, sorry, the, the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes the most when he speaks. So Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, it'll be up here on the screen. It reads this way. This is the Mosaic law around this idea of swearing and making vows. God says this, if you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord, your God, will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. If you don't do it, if you don't make that vow, you're not going to be guilty. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God to do what you've promised with your mouth. Okay, what what is the law? What is the heart of this law? The context of this text in Deuteronomy is important. Uh, You can look it up later if you want from Deuteronomy 23. Actually, in in our modern Bibles, okay, the, the people who print Bibles and make Bibles and sell Bibles, they, they put headings on different sections of Scripture. The heading of this Scripture in my Bible is miscellaneous laws. Very specific, very clear. Um, and so you have to do a little bit of work, but what you see when you, when you kind of sift through it, these are laws dealing with human interaction. So the law right before it has to do with um, charging interest to other people in the nation of Israel. God says, don't do that. Don't charge interest to other people in the nation of Israel. Foreigners, people outside of the nation of Israel, Fine, charge them interest. But if you loan something to your brother or your sister in the nation of Israel, I mean, don't make them pay interest on that. Just make them pay you back and just call it good. And then right after this text on vows in Deuteronomy 23, um, he goes into, man, how do we handle other people's property? And specifically, he says, man, if you're walking through somebody else's vineyard and you take a few grapes and you pop them in your mouth, that's actually okay. That's not stealing. You're just having a snack. But if you line your pockets with grapes, that's a different story, okay? If you take a few... Uh, um, grain off of, off of the wheat and you pop it in your mouth. That's actually okay. Like, listen, he's got plenty and we're called to kind of sh- share of, of our abundance. But if you go cutting it down and take it home to make some bread, that's, that's not okay. And so the reason why that's important to understand the context is to understand that what God is talking about in this section on vows is human interaction. It's not kind of in that desperate plea before God, God, I swear, if you just let me date this girl, I will read my Bible every day. I'm making a vow before you, right? Or whatever your desperate plea is. Yours might be way more serious than that one. Um, But whatever it may be, that's not what's going on here. It's, It's human interaction. You see, in ancient Israel, vows were actually really important. And so the law is not to say, don't ever make a vow, the laws that say, man, vows are serious and you need to fulfill them. You see, this was an oral culture. It was a time in which there, were no, there wasn't banks or legal systems in order to secure a deal. You didn't put it in writing. You just said you were going to do it. 
And so if people were making a business transaction, it says, man, I will pay you for this. That's all you had was their word to go on. And so in order to kind of create a framework to build weight onto that, to kind of seal it, to guarantee it, right? God says, okay, if you swear by me, you better do it. And so, man, if, if, I'm, if I'm saying, man, let's do this deal, let's, let's get this done, whatever it may be, some, some big thing, right? I swear by Yahweh, I swear by the God of heaven and earth that I will deliver good on my word. And so what it creates, what it creates is a structure and kind of a, a safe way for a community to flourish. Without this, without trust, communities cannot flourish. All of this, this law in Deuteronomy 23, helps the community. Lies erode trust, and the erosion of trust destroys relationships. It destroys friendships, destroys communities. It destroys whole societies. This is just how it works. Lying and trust cannot coexist. One will inevitably erode the other. It's like a landslide, right? A rock fall, okay? It doesn't all fall at once. Pressure builds and builds and builds and builds over time, or time the pressure goes. And in that moment, we say, I can't, I can't be exposed here. No one can find out about this. Or, or I need to get them to believe this thing to be true. One small stone moves and the rest begins to follow. We know this is true. We know this is how lies work. Whole strategies have been built about, around this. Um, in World War II, there was a guy, Josef Goebbels. Josef uh, Goebbels was this German kind of marketing expert. Uh, people often wonder, man, how did Hitler get all of these Germans to like believe in him and cheer him on and like follow him? Like how did he, how did he do that? Um, this is an amazing thing. And, and not all Germans did, but the majority of Germany was like, yes, let's do it, right? It all began with this guy, Yosef. Yosef was the Reich uh, kind of leader of propaganda. He was the Reich Marshal of propaganda. That was his job, and he was brilliant. He created a strategy that is known today as the one big lie strategy. What he did was he would create one big lie. Every ounce of propaganda, every ounce of marketing would say the same thing, and they would just bombard the people. They'd say it in a million different ways, but they'd say the same thing, and they'd get them to believe one big lie. And what they could do is if they could get the, the population to buy into this one big lie, everything else would follow. And the one big one, that's, they did this again and again and again, but the one big one that's most famous is that they convinced the German citizen, right, one big lie. The, the European Jew is profiting from, benefiting from, encouraging the war. They are the, they're the source, they're the problem. All of the pain, all of the violence, everything you're experiencing, man, they are the root of it all. That's the one big lie. And as soon as they got the people to buy into that one lie, man, all these other small little lies could follow. All these other small little distortions of truth could follow and they could do whatever they wanted to do with the European Jew. They did this again and again and again and again, and friends, guess what? That system of marketing is still being studied and perfected today by companies everywhere and by politicians that you support and vote for. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get all political on you. I'm just saying that's happening right now. Like the number one strategy in Washington right now to get you to believe that something is good is to just simply lie about it. Just convince them it's good. Just convince them that this is really, really bad 
And so therefore, this must be good. Or whatever it may be. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to fulfill this thing. And then never really actually do it. But I got you to believe it so that I could do all of these other little things that I really wanted to do. The strategy is still happening today. And I'm not talking about one person. I'm talking about both sides of the aisle. This is not a political statement. This is just like the reality of it. Just, just dig a little bit. If we can just spin it enough, if we can just create enough fog, just create enough haze, create enough mud that they can't dig down to see what's actually going on. I mean, we can get everything we really want to get through, through. It's happening constantly in marketing and in politics all over. You see, when a society begins to go down this path where lying is acceptable, the culture begins to erode. You want to know why we're so divided, so unbelievably divided as a nation right now? It's acceptable. It's okay. It's okay to lie. People just say, oh, I can't believe you did that. Well, I'll move on. And then it happens again and again and again. And again, we're used to it by now. But we're at each other's throats because of it. And so the law in Deuteronomy 23 is designed to help the people. It's an important law for the people of ancient Israel. It was put into place to help them flourish. But now you fast forward to first century Israel. And once again, the Pharisees have taken an Old Testament law and try to create laws around it in order to protect them from ever breaking the law. Remember, all of this flows out of verse 20, Matthew 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Every one of these statements, these six statements, flows out of that verse. Jesus is dismantling the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's breaking down the righteousness of the Pharisees and exposing their unrighteousness. A verse that's really important that's going to kind of help you, I hope help you, understand what's going on in that day. Uh, Jesus later in Matthew 23, uh, 16, kind of explains kind of this, this system of vows and promises that the, that the Pharisees have created. Um, Matthew writes about it. Matthew 23, it'll be here on the screen. Matthew 23, 16, Jesus says this. He's ascribing these seven woes to the Pharisees. This is one of them. He says, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. It doesn't really matter. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by an oath. You better watch out. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. Like, who cares? It's not a big deal. You don't have to fulfill that oath. You don't have to fulfill that promise. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, man, that's... That's a binding oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by whom he dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This text is helpful in giving us a better context for the words that, that Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. It kind of clues us into what's happening in that day. The Pharisees had created a new complex system for swearing and making oaths. Certain things that one might swear on were more binding than other things. Yet ultimately what the system communicates is that some lies are okay while others are not. The Pharisees had taken the Old Testament and changed it to their benefit while completely ignoring the heart of the law. Once again, the Pharisees could say that they had never broken that kind of law, that kind of oath. And therefore, 
I'm righteous. They could tell lies all day as long as those lies did not swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar. They were considered in their own eyes anyways, righteous. The Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 23 kind of supports and builds up the flourishing of the community. But the new way that the Pharisees are offering supports and builds up only their own false sense of righteousness. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see, do you see kind of the cultural context of the day? Is it making sense at all? Three of you. Okay. I'm terrible at my job. Uh, so what does Jesus say about all of this? Verse 34. But I say to you, he says, do not take an oath at all. Just don't do it. Now that goes back again to that verse, Deuteronomy 23, where he says, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. The heart of the law is this. Just be honest. Simple. If everybody's just honest, guess what? You don't need the law. If, if you just tell the truth, you got nothing to worry about. Don't be somebody who says, man, I'll be there, and then doesn't show up. Don't be somebody who says, this is what happened, when that didn't really happen. Don't be somebody who says, I won't do that, and then you go ahead and do it anyways. Don't be that person. Just, just don't do it. Just be honest. Don't take an oath at all. Jesus says, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or one hair black. They didn't have hair dye at the time, but permanently you can't do that either. Jesus is dismantling the Pharisee's system of oaths and vows. He's taking it apart. Essentially what he's saying is this, it does not matter what you swear on, what you swear by, you cannot avoid the one who owns it all. That's what they're trying to do, right? The gift on the altar is being given to you, who? God, yeah, thank you. Not a true question, I promise. I'm not trying to fool you. The gift on the altar is being given to God. But the altar, like, like we built that. Like that was made by humans. And so that's kind of ours. So if you swear by that, you're not bound by God. But if you swear by the gift, then you're bound by, by God. I mean, the, the temple, we built a temple, right? But the, but the gold in the temple, man, that's like, that was given to God. Like that's like the marker of his greatness and his glory. And his great, that's his, that's a gift to him. So don't swear by the gold in the temple because that'll bind you to that, to that promise. But you can swear by the temple. Like that's, that's different. It's like crossing your fingers and putting them behind your back when you tell a lie. It's like, it's like I swear by the temple, but I didn't swear by the gold, right? What Jesus is saying is, that's moronic. God owns it all. What are you gonna swear by? You gonna swear by heaven? He resides there. That is his throne room. You're going to swear by earth? That's his footstool. You're going to swear by your head? The hairs in your head? I swear by the hairs of my head. Really? You think he doesn't own that too? You think he doesn't own you, possess you in every way, shape, or form? All things are created by him and all things are created for him. All things are created through him. He is the maker and sustainer of all things. What are you going to swear by? That he's a, like you're trying to avoid him and he cannot be avoided. It's moronic is what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus says this, verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the shocking statement at the end. And it might not seem shocking to you, but it was shocking for the first century audience. First century Israel, these oaths and vows had become so commonplace and kind of flippantly all day, every day. I swear by the temple. I swear by this. Like all day. Everybody does this. 
Jesus has meant anything more than simply saying yes or no flows from evil. You're calling me evil? You're saying that what I, what I do is evil? How, how can you say that about me? It's not that big of a deal. Jesus says, oh, but it is that big of a deal. Anything more than yes or no comes from evil. If you need to add more to a statement in order to give it greater weight of truth, it's your sin. Your sin has robbed your simple yes or no from its own weight and from its own authority. You need to add more weight because your yes or no does not carry enough weight on its own. Your past sin has destroyed the weight of your yes or no. People don't believe you because they've been lied to by you. And so you gotta say, no, 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 I, I promise I'll be there because last time you weren't. I swear I'll pay you back because last time you didn't. People don't believe you. All of it flows from evil. Evil or the sinfulness of a lying has produced a need for such an addition. Every lie ever told is formed in the very depths of the greatest evil. Every lie ever told is formed in the very depths of the greatest evil. Jesus puts it this way in John 8. In John 8, uh, there's this argument that breaks out between Jesus and the Pharisees. That's probably shocking for you. That doesn't happen often. Um, but in the beginning of John 8, the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery, right? You've, you've heard this story, even if you didn't grow up in church, because there's a famous line where Jesus says, says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Well, from that, like the Pharisees don't take that very lightly. This argument breaks out and they, they kind of get into it and it gets heated and it builds and builds and builds through John 8. And in verse 44, Jesus kind of just says it. He just shuts it down. He says this, he says, you, you are of your father, the devil. Okay, um, that'll end the argument real quick. And your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of all lies. There is no truth in him. He's a liar and the liar of the father of all lies. The defining mark of the greatest evil of all evils is lying. It's not murder. It's not rape. It's lying. It is his character, it is his nature, it is where all of the rest of it begins. All of the rest of it begins. To murder is to lie, to rape is to lie, to believe something that is not true, to do something that is not true. It all begins with lying. There's a depth and a weight to truths and lies that goes way beyond our simple human right and wrong. It's not that this is just not okay, right? You, the world knows it's not okay. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to know that being lied to hurts. You don't have to be, have to be a follower of Jesus to know that. But the follower of Jesus should know that this is way deeper than that. There's a supernatural, spiritual element to this that cannot be ignored. Every big lie and small lie plays into the hand of the devil. He wins every time we believe something that is not true and every time we say something that is not true. Every untrue word that has taken root in your heart is the work of him. I don't know what people have spoken over your life, but for many of us in this room, we have bought into things that are not true of ourselves. That you are not good enough to be loved by someone else. That you can never be loved by God. That Jesus alone is not enough for you. 
that more money will be the thing that impresses and wins real friends. That real beauty, real beauty will attract the attention that you need, that you deserve. That you're a bad mom or a failure as a dad. That you'll never be really loved or accepted that nobody really wants to know you deeply, truly, intimately, nobody wants to know you. So many of us have been lied to, maybe from your dad or an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody growing up, somebody recently, and you've bought into that. It's shaped and molded your life. You've been living in that truth for years, but it's not true, it's a lie. But it's shaped and molded you, you've bought into it, you believe it. This is the work of Satan. He has you exactly where he wants you. Satan is constantly working to destroy and distort the truth. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul puts it this way. He says, in their case, he's talking about people who don't follow Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus. In their case, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, you gotta feel the weight of that. What Paul is saying is that, man, there are people in our lives who do not know Jesus, people in our lives who are believing things about Jesus that are absolutely not true, that are following a different path, and the reason that they're doing that is not because, man, they're just confused, not because they just read something on the internet, not because, man, somebody somewhere along the way told them something different. No, Satan is at work in their minds. I'm not trying to be the boogeyman. I'm trying to scare you. I'm not trying to, like, man, make this to be something that's not. There is a weight to truth and lies, man, that must be felt, that must be realized, that must be understood. This is what he does. He's good at it. There's family members in your lives that do not know Jesus because Satan is actively working in their minds. People, coworkers, friends, neighbors. Man, this is beyond us. It should drive us to our knees in prayer because there's nothing you're gonna do about it. You cannot convince them of something else. God alone must take root and destroy the work of the evil one. I love how John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, puts it, he says it this way. He says, so he, he being Satan, not only speaks what is false, he hides what is true. He keeps us from seeing the treasure of the gospel. He lets us see the facts, even proofs, but not the preciousness. All the time here at Flourishing Grace, we're warring against this. So many people, so many, many, many people say, man, I I believe in Jesus, but they've never actually experienced the flourishing relationship that he has on offer for them. They've, they've They've never fully delighted in the goodness of Christ They've never actually treasured him and found their deepest pleasures in him and him alone because Satan's at work in their minds. Satan does not want you to know the depths of the treasure of Christ. Know all the things you want to know about him. Read your Bible. Know the facts. Believe the facts. Be convinced of the proofs. Satan doesn't care. What he wants to keep you from is a relationship with him. You must feel the weight of this, the importance of living in the truth at all time and fleeing from that which is untrue. Do not get lost in the old school jargon of the text. I know it's confusing. 
This may seem strange to us today in our culture because today we don't really make O's or vows regularly. Like I was trying to think, man, when was the last time I heard somebody say, like, I swear? The only thing I come up with is that story when I was like five years old. Like that was burning in my brain. That's all I got. Uh, that was the best I could come up with. I just, it's just not in our culture today. However, just, just like the Pharisees, identically like the Pharisees, we too like to shift the definition of what it means to lie. We like to change the definition, definition of what it means to tell the truth. Trying to distinguish between big sins and little sins. There's, there's a difference, right? Big lies, little lies. There's a difference, right? And the things that are not exactly a lie. I mean, that's not really a lie, right? The same thing the Pharisees did, we do today. The distortion of the truth is so common in our culture today, we often fail to see that it's taking place in our own, own hearts all the time. All the time. In small ways. Small things, right? Like saying you're going to be there, and they're just not showing up. Or bailing in the last minute. This is so common in our day. You've done it. You have done it. You've experienced it. It's hurt you. It's happened to you. It's so common in our day. Cutting out of work early without permission, right? Everybody does it. Just a few minutes. I've got things to do. Fun stuff going on. I've got plans with my family. I mean, my boss does it all the time. Who cares? You're deceiving. You're distorting what is true. Saying I'm almost there. I'm five minutes away. When you don't even have your pants on yet. You know what I'm talking about. Judging by your laughter, you've experienced that. Oh, I'll be right there. No, no, I'm, I'm around the block. Yeah, 30 minutes out, man. It's common in our day. Or when a trusted friend asks you how you're doing, like somebody who you really trust, somebody who's involved in the deepest areas of your life, they say, how are you doing? You say, I'm fine. When everything's actually falling apart. Every time, in the smallest ways, Satan is at work there. He's delighting in that. And in the big ways, for sure, refusing to speak truth to a friend who desperately needs it because you're afraid of the blowback that'll come. You know it's not gonna be comfortable, so you just don't do it. Or hiding a few small things from your spouse or from your boss. It's just a few small things that grow into bigger things, that grow into bigger things, that grow into bigger things. People who constantly lie or live with the propensity to lie speak the language of the evil one. It is his language. There is not room for it among the people of God. What Jesus is calling his people to in this text, his description for the people of this kingdom, the description of this new way of life is pure and complete integrity. As Christians, we should be a people who constantly guard the words of our mouths so as to never speak falsely. Never allow falsehood to come from our mouth. That we might be people who can be counted upon to do what we say we will do at all cost. I will be there at all cost. I'll pay you back at all cost. I'll be honest, even to my own shame and embarrassment. I know this is so ridiculous and I don't want anybody to find out. It's just embarrassing. It's shameful. But I will be forthright at all cost. I'll be truthful to my friends. I'll tell them what's really going on. I'll tell them the things that they really need to know at all cost. Cost of my own comfort, cost of my own sense of security. I'm gonna be honest at all cost. You see, the reality is that we have a savior who is completely dependable. 
You, whether you realize it or not, you are absolutely dependent on Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus here in the room, there's nobody in your life that you depend on more than Christ. Because he has made a promise that you've bought into to come back, to restore what has been broken, to put an end to the curse of sin, to defeat the evil one, to put an end to all lies, all tyranny, all pain, all sorrow, and to usher us into his eternal kingdom once and for all. That's, that's a promise. And we've all staked our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know not everybody is, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you staked your lives on that promise. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't fulfill? What if he doesn't follow through? What if he changes his mind? He does not change his mind. He will fulfill. You see, the cross is the marker, the greatest marker of integrity that the world has ever known. He promised it in the garden, man. With Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, when they rebelled against God, God says, no, 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 I will make this right. I'm putting enmity between you and the woman. You're gonna, he's gonna bruise your heel, he's gonna crush your head. I'm gonna make this right. I'm gonna destroy the evil one. I'm gonna ruin the curse of sin. And I'm gonna make this right. I'm gonna reestablish what you've made wrong. And he sealed it, he guaranteed it when he went to the cross. At all costs, I will make this right. At all costs. To my own son, I will make this right. When he hangs there, bleeding out, he says, I've counted the cost. And I will not go back on what I've promised you. That is our Savior. That's our God. That is our King. That's the one that we've come here today to worship. That's the one that we've come here today to sing about. That's the one that we've come here today to talk about. That's the one that every single day of our lives, we ought to be bowed before the one who will never leave us or forsake us, the one who has fulfilled every promise he's ever made and those that he has not fulfilled are just simply yet to come. He will fulfill. He will. So the question this morning is, did you, did you, people in your life, do they look at you that way? As a follower of Jesus, does your life embody that? Is, that a, is integrity, truth-telling, is that a marker of your life? Are you someone who people know when he speaks, when he says yes, or when she says yes, that means absolutely, beyond any shadow of a doubt, at all costs, yes. When he says no, that means beyond any shadow of a doubt, no. Is that true of you? Do the people in your life say, man, there's a supernatural, crazy level of integrity in that man or in that woman? Can you point to your own life and say, man, that's the integrity of Christ? He has given that to me. I walk in accordance to his word. My, my, my prayer this morning is that you feel the weight of living in the truth, that we would be a people who live every moment of our days, every second of our lives in the truth, clinging to the truth, clinging to Christ. Let me pray for you all this morning. Jesus, we come before you this morning and just declare in this place that you are the God of all truth. You, you have said for us the truth. The truth is the thing that will set us free. You are that truth. In you is the most pure, unadulterated, perfect truth. Would you shape us and mold us into, to be people of the truth? 
Would you free us of the lies from the past that we bought into, the lies that, that Satan has placed deep within our souls? Would you lead us into the truth? Show us who we really are in Christ, loved, adored, washed, clean, white as wool, pure as snow. Show us who we are in you. Speak the truth of your word into the depths of our soul that the darkness of falsehood could not stand there. And then let us be a people who live that out. The highest form, the greatest form of integrity that the world has ever seen ought to be that of the follower of Jesus. Help us. We cannot do this alone. We cannot do this under our own power. Help us to be a people who, when we mess up and when we slip up and when we show up late or don't show up at all or say a little lie, there's ultimately a big lie, but we want to believe it's a little one. We'll be people who quickly confess that. Not just you, but to the person that we've offended. Say, I'm sorry, I said this and it's not true. I said I'd be there and I wasn't. Maybe we repent from that and get back to work trusting in your grace, trusting in your mercy that washes over us is all we'll ever need, is all we'll ever need, is all we'll ever need. Grace alone. Let's be people who rest in that grace and fight to stay in your truth. For these things in your sweet name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand.